I'm reading from John 20, 1 through 21. Early on the first day, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the, then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Now, on this morning, let's welcome our speaker, Chris Meekins. All right. Hey, everyone. Happy Easter. We're so glad that you're with us today. Uh, can I give these to you? Um, as we begin, um, how do you know if a story is believable? How do you know? Um, recently, I was in Florida because my family moved there during the pandemic and never left. Uh, <laughs> and we were talking about all the silly things that I did growing up. Like one time on Christmas Day, this sounds like something, sounds unbelievable. On Christmas Day, I was trying to shoot a squirrel with a BB gun um, and I missed and shot out the neighbor's window on Christmas Day. And, <laughs> and, uh, we're, and like my dad was, we we're all laughing about it because I'm older now. Uh, <laughs> this didn't happen last week. It, <laughs> I was a child, I was 18. Oh my God. So, even Ralphie was younger than me. Um, <clears throat> so uh, we we're telling that story. And then my dad tells this story about my brother who was playing with, you know when you play horseshoes, there's those stakes you throw on the ground? Well, my brother and my other brother had taken the stakes out of the ground 
and they were chucking them across the backyard. Like, like I, I don't know, maybe the girls are looking at me like, what is going on here? All the boys are like, yeah, this is what boys of a certain age do. They throw things and hurt themselves. This is why our life expectancy is a little bit lower than yours. And so they were chucking these things in the background. And my dad says, my son, my brother, his name is Matt, tells this unbelievable story that they're throwing these things. Now, um, we lived in Cleveland, Ohio, and we thought the best thing for our backyard was to have an above-ground pool, which is really cool if you want the water to come up to here and stare at your feet. And so we had that. And so they were uh, chucking these stakes in the ground, and my dad says that he told a story where he threw it, and it bounced off a stone and rolled the other way and went into the side of the above-ground pool, and it all started leaking <laughs> water. And he's like, it was unbelievable. So we, what we did is we were like, let's kind of get to the bottom of this. So we called my brother on speaker phone and we started talking to him about it. And literally he tells the exact same story that my dad tells. And he goes, he goes, you know, I, dad, you wouldn't have believed it if you saw it. I threw the spike away from the above ground pool. It hits a rock. It does a U-shaped moon turn and goes into the side of the pool. <laughs> um, that was the funny part of the story. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> And he, and he said, as soon as it happened, I thought to myself, oh, poop. But he didn't say poop on the call. But we're Christians. And he goes, oh, poop. My dad's never going to believe me. This is an unbelievable story. And so, but actually the story lined up. And so we didn't believe him. So we called my other brother. My other brother told the exact same story. And in the story, both of them were super embarrassed by what had happened. Uh, here's where I transition. <laughs> Did you know that stories that contain embarrassment are often stories that could be considered to be true. So if you talk to a detective, a police detective, um, an, a, an investigator, and someone even known as like a historical investigator, these are people that investigate historical facts, they look for something called criterion of embarrassment. Has anyone ever heard this term before? Criterion of embarrassment. So when you turn on Law & Order or when you watch uh, any other show, they usually have something called eyewitnesses. And these eyewitnesses, detectives and historians, will look for criterion of embarrassment. And they ask themselves, is this person telling a story where they seem really clean, they seem really polished, do they come off as like perfect? Or do they tell a story that could possibly embarrass them? Does the eyewitness include details about what they saw that might embarrass them? And embarrassment is actually a sign that somebody might be telling the truth. Do you follow what I'm saying? Like if you're just trying to get the truth out there, you don't mind your embarrassment, even though it could be embarrassing. Now in the eyewitness accounts, when we dig into what we just read, what Ingrid just read for us, we see lots of embarrassing moments happening for Mary Magdalene, for happening for Peter, and happening for John. In the story we just read, Mary Magdalene arrives at the tomb first, and she's thinking that the body was taken. She's like, where's the body? And at this point, she's thinking rationally, much like you would think. She's not thinking, you know what, maybe he resurrected. Because nobody at this time thought that way. During this time, in the first century, much like people think today, when you die, you're dead and you stay dead. Okay, And at this point, 
what we see is that she's admitting her own confusion. She's admitting her own ignorance. This is criterion of embarrassment. She's not like, oh, I knew from the beginning as soon as I saw the linens he was raised. She's saying, I don't know what happened. Who stole the body? So what, is hap what happens in the story? Mary runs and tells John and Peter. And what do they do? Do you remember? Do you remember what you just read uh, or saw on the screen or heard? They start running towards the tomb. They head off in a sprint. Um, and they're heading off into a sprint. And the text says that they start running, but John starts to outpace Peter. They're racing to the tomb, and John decides to write down in his story that he called John, you know, <laughs> Peter, I'm going to write a book, and it's going to be called John, because I'm John, and we're not good at naming things. And you know what we're going to do? I'm going to put this little detail in here, that we started sprinting, and everyone's going to know once and for all that I know how to beat you in a foot race. And Peter's like, John, but it's true. They're going to read this for thousands of years. And 2,000 years later, there's going to be a guy named Chris that's going to preach on it. He's going to remind you all that you lost this foot race. <laughs> They're documenting something that's embarrassing for Peter. John's documenting it, but it's embarrassing. Peter's like, do you have to include it? He's like, I think we do. And Peter says, and, and so it says, the text says that Peter saw, because Peter goes in first, Right? He says that John gets there and then he hangs outside and he's like, I don't know if I want to go in. But Peter bursts in because that's what Peter does. He bursts in. He's like, he saw. And then it says, the, te the text says that John eventually saw, right? And the, the Greek word for see is the word theoreo or theoreo, which is where we get our English word to theorize. Theoreo, theorize. Do you see the similarities? And this Greek word basically means to observe something intently, looking for explanation. And what you see in the text is that Peter and John, they're looking, they're thinking, they're trying to rationalize what's happening. They're trying to get an insight into what's happening in this moment. And they're pausing because they know their culture, they know their context, and they're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Why did they leave the garments? Why would grave robbers spend time unwrapping a corpse? What's the deal? Why would you do that? Why did they leave behind the valuable stuff? So I don't know if you know this, but like the spices and the fragrances, that's the valuable stuff right? So like when grave robbers would come in, they would not mess with the body. What they would do is they would take the spices and the fragrances. And they would go sell those on the black market. And that's how they, they can make a profit on it. But Peter and John realized something weird is happening here. Wait a second. There's no body. And their linens that the body was in have been left behind. And then they left the money on the table. Maybe you've heard this, the phrase uh, from famous movies, leave the gun, take the cannoli. Uh, leave the money, <laughs> take the body. That's what they did here. It's very odd. Something isn't adding up here. I don't understand what these grave robbers are up to, or they're really, really, really gross people. We don't know. And so when we read this, you can see them. They're almost visual, you can almost visualize them trying to work it out mentally. They're furiously thinking it out. What is going on here? 
There's a missing body, and they left the money on the table. Something isn't adding up. And the point of me bringing this up is that we already had Mary Magdalene that documented her confusion, and now you have Peter and John. One of them loses a foot race. They go in there, and what we see is they're documenting that they're thinking, and they're documenting their own confusion. And I want to point this out because these two guys, Peter and John, both end up being fathers of the Christian movement. They're credited as being fathers of the Christian movement. And to be honest, this is not a good look if you're trying to start a religion. If you Here, religion starting 101. Be confident all the time in what you believe. Okay, And these guys go, no, we don't know what's going on. We, are, we, can, we don't know why they took the body and left the linens. We're sort of confused. We're actually uncertain of what's happening here. This is another example of the criterion of embarrassment. And it seems as if Peter and John were willing to tell a story and Mary Magdalene was willing to tell a story about themselves that was embarrassing simply because they think it's true. Now, a little bit more about Mary. This is really fun, Mary Magdalene. Not Mary, the mother of Jesus, but Mary Magdalene. But in order to do, talk about Mary, I have to talk about another name. Maybe some of you who uh, studied history or philosophy understand and know the name Celsus. Not Celsius and not Fahrenheit. Celsus. Okay? Celsus. Celsus was a second century philosopher. Okay? And his main goal in life was to destroy Christianity. He didn't win. And specifically, he sought to destroy the credibility of the eyewitnesses. He thought that the eyewitness accounts were the weakest part, and so what he did is everything he could to destroy what he thought would be the credibility of these eyewitness accounts. And one of his main critiques of the eyewitness accounts is that the eyewitness accounts could not be trusted. They could not be trusted because the first people to see the resurrected Jesus were women. <gasps> I know, Lupita. It's the worst. <laughs> this is a quote from him. He said, you couldn't trust these eyewitness accounts because the first person to see Jesus was a hysterical female deluded by sorcery. Can you believe that, Patrick? Now, Celsus, not Celsius, not Fahrenheit, Celsus lived in a misogynist time, a low status of women. And often in the Roman Empire, the status of women was so low that they, couldn't, they wouldn't even use a woman's testimony in a court of law. Like, they're, they can't even trust women. They can't trust they're telling the truth. They can't be trusted whatsoever. And even if her, the testimony would be admitted in a court by a woman, it certainly, certainly wouldn't be admitted by someone named Mary Magdalene, who struggled with homelessness and mental health issues until she encountered the living Jesus and was made whole again. She had a lot of trouble in her life, so people like Celsus were not going to listen to someone like this. And so, needless to say, women were not equals with men. And the general public believed that they could not be trusted. And so the logic of Celsus and many people of his day an age was that you could not trust the eyewitnesses, at least the first eyewitnesses, because they were women. And Celsus' argument at the time was what he thought to be the Achilles heel against Christianity. He found it to be the weakest part of the Christian faith. But what do we see in the story? In all of the eyewitness accounts about Jesus, the first people to see the risen Jesus were women. 
And here's why this is important. As you know, the argument against the credibility of women has diminished over time, especially in Western society. And this is a very good thing. This is a good thing for you. This is definitely a good thing for me. And thank God that has changed. And we've, we've just changed the way we view women across the world, at least in Western society. Um, but second, historians now believe, people who study history professionally, historians, people who study this in the first century, they conclude now that the detail of women being the first people to see Jesus risen from the dead actually strengthens the eyewitness accounts. It strengthens them. Why? Because historians say, historians that understood the context of Celsus, they understood women in, in that culture and how they were viewed as second-class citizens, historians were now say that if you are inventing a story about someone who rose from the dead, in the first century, you would never put women as the first eyewitnesses. It was unthinkable because nobody would believe you, and now why write a story that nobody's going to believe? And the only plausible explanation, the only plausible explanation that John, the writer of John, would put a woman as the first person to see the risen Jesus was that he had no desire to make up a story and he was convinced of what he had seen and he was convinced that he needed to tell the story accurately, not tell a story that made him look good or the religion look believable. And if you were to ask John, the writer of John, why did you do it that way? Why did you put Mary Mags as the first person to see Jesus alive? Why would you do that? Nobody's going to believe you. You're going to discredit us from the beginning. This is a waste of time. He would probably look back and be like, what are you talking about? This isn't a game. This is how it is. This is how it went down. This is actually what happened. Why wouldn't I tell the truth? Why would I make up a story? So, I don't want to actually encourage you to do this, but if you do do it, it's okay. I don't know how often you get in debates with people about the eyewitnesses of Jesus, uh, seeing Jesus resurrected. But if anyone ever challenges, challenges you and says, well, why should I believe that Jesus rose from the dead? How can we trust the eyewitnesses? I know that's not a common question, but say it comes up. <laughs> say it comes up and they go, you know, hey, you know, why should I believe the eyewitnesses? Why should I believe that Jesus rose from the dead? You can say back to them, well, I believe the testimony of women, don't you? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and the point is this. What they did, what these writers went through, and what Mary Magdalene went through, and what John did to put Mary Magdalene in the story, to include details of eyewitnesses, and their credibility, and the criterion of embarrassment, they should cause us to pause and consider the extraordinary measures and the countercultural approach these people took to tell us this story. Now, there's something else we have to see about the eyewitnesses, and then I want to talk about what this means for us, but there's something else we have to wrestle with with the eyewitnesses. If you were going to make up a story, why would you tell a really good story about a liar? Like, if Jesus was lying, do the reverse with me. If Jesus was lying about who he said he was, why would you make up a good story about him, and why would you keep it going for all those years? Why would you tell a good story about a liar? Well, before Jesus, during Jesus, and after Jesus, there were people that pretended to be messiahs, 
People that were going to come and save Israel and save the world. They were going to rise up. And, they, and every time this happened, here's what would happen. Someone would come along with it and go, I'm the Messiah. And they would start to gather a crowd. Like they'd build, you know, good, good attendance on their events. And they would have, and they would go around and they'd start to share their teaching and their ideas. And they'd build momentum and then they would go into Jerusalem and then they'd get their heads cut off. Every single time that happened, before, during, and after Jesus, these fake messiahs, these pretenders would come in and they would try to lead the people towards what they thought would be the right thing, and every single time they would be struck down. And what would happen to all their disciples and all their followers? Every time one of these fake pretender messiahs would get killed, the disciples of that particular fake messiah would go, oh well, I guess we got it wrong, let's go back to the drawing board. And they would go back to their daily lives. They wouldn't continue to tell the story. And everything that the fake Messiah taught would be forgotten. No one would continue to perpetuate what that person was teaching. Why would they do that? Because after all, they were a liar. They weren't who they said they were. A few days later, after the resurrection, or a few days later after the resurrection, we see that these people get something in their soul and they actually believe it happened. They actually believed that something had happened. And then a few years later, the Apostle Paul, he wrote most of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians. Now the Corinthians, if you don't know what that is, are people from Corinth. This is in Greece. And he wrote a letter and he said, look, we're so convinced of the resurrection Here's some of the names, the towns. Here's some of the names of the people who are still alive that you can go talk to about this. Here's where they live. Here's what they do for a living. Go investigate, look into it. You can discover it. So this story is different because when a fake Messiah comes along and it doesn't work out, everyone goes back to find the new Messiah. But in this particular situation, we see that dozens and dozens of years later, there's still hundreds and hundreds of people who claim to see, that claim that they saw Jesus alive, talk to him, and now follow him. They believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And this is something that people at this time had no concept of. Resurrection was an idea. There's literally nothing in any body of historical literature that has anything about people rising from the dead before. Jesus was the first. He was the first on the scene for this. So even if you're here and you don't believe in the resurrection, you still have to conclude that something is happening in this moment that has never happened in all of history. Something that has never been mentioned before in history has happened to these people. You're going to have to answer the question, why would these eyewitnesses go on telling something like this? And why would these eyewitnesses go on and be willing to die for a lie? Why would they be willing to do this? Even if you don't believe in the resurrection, historically speaking, you're going to have to come up with some kind of explanation why these people would go on talking about Jesus rising from the dead. You think that they were that clever? These fishermen were that clever to come up with something that had never come up and been come up for in human history? They're going to just do that? And why would they be willing to die for that? Nobody believed that when you were dead, you could come back to life, but they're somehow perpetuating this. And if Jesus was a messianic pretender who had died, there's no reason to keep it going. There's no justifiable reason to promote a liar. Let me give you an example of this. Spend some time 
pontificating the life of Peter. Peter gets picked up on the beach by GC. JC. He starts following Jesus. And he, first, he believes. And then he kind of like unbelieves. And then like he like really is, gets a little, uh, thinks he's believing the right thing. And, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And then they like work it out, the details on that. And then when Jesus gets arrested, uh, Peter runs and hides. So he abandons Jesus again. And then um, he gets confronted by a middle school girl and pretends like he never knew Jesus ever. And then uh, Jesus dies, and then Jesus rises from then, and then he has a conversation with Jesus on the beach, and Jesus reinstates him. So he keeps going back and forth. Um, he believed, then he unbelieved, and then he rebelieved. If you look into history, and we look into the accounts of how Peter ended, we see that Peter ended up being crucified for his belief that Jesus rose from the dead. At the end of the day, he went from on to off, kind of like back and forth with Jesus, all the way to like willing to die for his belief. He couldn't give it up. Why couldn't Peter give up believing that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, the only logical conclusion is that Peter saw his best friend murdered he saw where his best friend was buried. And then he went in that tomb and it was gone. The body was gone. And then he had a conversation with Jesus on the beach. If you watch someone die and then you have a conversation with them three days later, that changes you. It changes what you think about the world. And he went so far to continue to promote what he saw, that when he got crucified, he didn't even want to be crucified like Jesus. He requested that he be crucified upside down because he thought Jesus dying on the cross in that moment was too powerful, that he chose to be crucified upside down because he didn't want to exactly resemble what Jesus did. And we see Peter and John and Mary and some of the other characters in these stories. They're shaped by the teachings of Jesus but they're mostly shaped by the resurrection. The resurrection is the thing that completely shaped their lives. The resurrection that they saw with their own lives, in their own eyes. So they saw it with their own eyes. Now, many people think that if you're a Christian, you just need to believe. You just need to have enough faith. You just need to muscle your belief. And some people think that Christians just decide that they're going to believe and they just have like this mental switch. I've talked to some people and they go, you know, you just have the faith switch. I don't have the faith switch. I just, you just flip the switch and you just choose to believe and ignore all the evidence and yada, yada, yada. But in these verses, I want to say something to you. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what you believe exactly. I don't know what struggles you have. But in these verses, the ones we just read, we see room for weakness. There's room for questioning. There's room for thinking. And there's definitely room for contemplation. And what I'd like to say to you is this. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're considering Christianity or you're, this is the worst, dumbest thing ever and I'm just here because my relative is here. Whatever it is, however it is you ended up to spend time in this children's room, uh, however you got here, I'd just like to say if your Christian faith isn't with all kinds of questions or thinking and reasoning, it's just not going to work for you. It won't help you 
with the ups and the downs of the real world. And wherever you are on your faith journey today, I want to encourage you to remember that the entire basis of Christianity hinges on these eyewitnesses. It hinges on the resurrection. So if you have thoughts, questions, concerns, learn, study, investigate, question. There's room for that. There's room for that with the founders of Christianity. Well, Jesus would be the founder. So like the fathers of Christianity. And there's room for that today. And as the leader of this organization, I, just, I have a lot of hope for people that are actually willing to question and look at it and try to figure out what's actually going on below the surface. Now, I've only provided a few pieces of evidence around eyewitnesses, but if you're the kind of person that likes to read books uh, that were written, <laughs> uh, I've got a, I got a resource for you. It's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, the Gospels as Eyewitness Testimony. This is by Richard Bachman. Uh, I've read this book. You should read this book if this is something of interest to you. So I, I, did, I did the Criterion of Embarrassment. I kind of did Why Would You Die for a Lie? And this has like, like a, a dozen or so different examples of different kinds of eyewitness accounts and why the logic of the eyewitnesses needs to be paid attention to. So if you're, if you're really looking to if I, uh, figure out the intelligibility and the credibility and the plausibility of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus, I strongly encourage this, um, this resource. So um, just a few more thoughts and then, we're gonna, and then we're gonna head out and enjoy some donuts and celebrate Easter together. But... Um, I've spent some time talking about the credibility of the eyewitnesses and the resurrection. But there's another important question I want to ask. Why is the resurrection important? Like, I mean, why does it even matter? Okay, so what? Maybe, maybe it happened. Well, the resurrection of Jesus does change everything. It changes everything for you and it changes everything for me. Let me put it this way. If Jesus rose from the dead, he's worth paying attention to. It means that what Jesus said about your life and what Jesus said about my life might be worth paying attention to. And if Jesus came back to life, like if he was dead, if he was actually dead, and if the possibility if it's true, if he came back to life, his big ideas for our lives might be worth trusting. And what was Jesus' big ideas for our life? What are they? That God is personal. That suffering, the suffering that you have endured, the losses you have endured, they are not evidence of God's absence. We learn that Jesus said that heaven is real and that heaven is actually coming to earth. Jesus said that you are loved by God, that he loves you, that he's not in a transactional, angry relationship with you. He actually loves you. <clears throat> he loves you, he's forgiven you, and now you are free to forgive and love others as well. Jesus also said that you and I can experience the power and the presence of the risen God right now in our lives. 
Now let me riff on that last one for just a minute. When Jesus died and rose from the dead, he said that he would ascend into heaven, but that we shouldn't worry, that we shouldn't worry about it, don't worry about it, because he's going to send himself back again in the form of his Holy Spirit who would be with us. And he said that anybody who asks for the Holy Spirit to come into their life, anybody who would request that, the Holy Spirit would come into their life and be with them. Anyone who would welcome that spirit, the Spirit of God would experience the power and the presence of the same Jesus that was physically here on earth. You can experience that right now. And this is why 2,000 years later, 2,000 years and some change later, there are billions of people sitting in uncomfortable chairs in some room this morning. They're doing it because they encountered the living God through the Holy Spirit. They took a step of faith and they welcomed the power and the presence of God into their little lives. And guess what? He showed up. He showed up and he's there. And 2,000 years later, people have had these personal experiences with Jesus that are equally as powerful and persuasive as any amount of proof that the eyewitnesses could offer you. Do you understand what I'm saying? The same Jesus is available today as was to the disciples and the eyewitnesses that were there. And you see, many people you and I know, some of the people that you love who are either in this room or not in this room, if you were to ask them, why do you believe? Why do you believe in Jesus? And what you will find is that the majority of them will not say, well, I had a chance to read Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham. <laughs> what you will find is many of them are going to be grasping for words. And what their response is going to seem simple. And they will say, well, I don't know how else to say this, but I believe in Jesus because he lives in me. And what are they saying when they say that? They're saying that something has taken place in their lives. They're saying that they have experienced the supernatural power and presence that can only come from the risen Jesus. That Jesus came into their lives and God himself came into their lives and opened their eyes to a new reality. And they simply know that they know that they know that he is alive and that he lives in them. And folks, I like the eyewitness stuff, but I'm one of those people too. I've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, and some of you have too. I stand before you as a witness to the modern Jesus doing something in my life. I've watched Jesus work in my family and save my family. I'm a witness to Jesus in my own life. He supernaturally pulled me out of my own foolishness, my own mistakes, my own destruction, my own terrible way of thinking. I am a consistent witness to the joy and the peace and the contentment that can only come from Jesus. And I'm a witness to the supernatural power of Jesus actually physically healing people I know in my life. They were not well before, they were sick before, and somebody prayed for their healing in Jesus' name, and I watched them get healed. I've seen it. I've seen it, and some of you have seen it too. And many of you in this room 
also stand as witnesses. Because, yes, because we believe the eyewitness accounts, but primarily because we've seen God's work in our own lives. Because it's true. And this is the good news of Easter. The good news of Easter is that we know that one has come before us. There's one who paid the price. There's one who defeated death. There's one that says, come near to me, draw near to me, experience me, experience life as it was meant to be lived. Nobody beats him. No one defeated him. He's not a dead God. He's not a dormant God. He's not a distant God. He's alive and well because he lives in us. And he's victorious and he reigns over everything. And that's what we're doing. And that's why we're excited today. That's why Easter is important for you. That it's not just that the eyewitnesses saw, it's not just the historical event, but that same Jesus is available to you and I today. May you go from here with the blessing of God. May you go from here remembering and welcoming the power of the Spirit because there's so many interesting things that God wants to do in your life if you'll let Him. Why don't we all stand?